This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. You are listening live to another edition of Play by Playcast. Welcome back in. Thanks for hitting download or subscribe, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. This is Play by Playcast. It's the podcast about play by play guys for play by play guys. By a play by play guy. It's findable on Twitter. You can hit us up at PXPCast or use the hashtag PXPCast if you'd like to get in touch with me. You can find me on Twitter at Joel Godet at J O E L G O D E T T. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts or we're a podcast. So wherever you can find your podcasts <laughs> uh, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, all those good things, you'll be able to find Play by Playcast. Tim Grubbs is our guest today. He is the longtime voice of the New Orleans Baby Cakes. Well, I guess he's the first-year voice of the Baby Cakes. Longtime voice of uh, the New Orleans Zephyrs. They've turned into the Baby Cakes this year. A little bit of a minor league baseball name change going on there. Uh, we'll touch on that and much more with Tim Grubbs. But before we get into that, I wanted to take a quick moment to recognize Brent Musburger, who announced his retirement this week. One of the icons and giants of this industry. And you now have limited chances to see his work before he's done. See his work live before he's done. His last broadcast is going to be on ESPN 9 o'clock on Tuesday night. If you're listening to this on time, this coming Tuesday, Tuesday, January 31st, it'll be Kentucky and Georgia, the last game that Brent Musburger calls. Guy who, I mean, is just one of the titans of... Sports broadcasting. Certainly there are controversies. Joe Mixon and the Sugar Bowl chiefly amongst that. And, you know, it's even recognized. ESPN did a a little quick biopic on Brent. Uh, If you go to ESPN.com and Jeremy Schapp voices it and and talks about the Joe Mixon controversy. And there's actually a sound bite from Brent Musburger in there about the Catherine Webb comments he had with AJ McCarron several years back. So certainly there are, there are some things he has said that have been controversial, but That included, he is still one of the greatest people to pick up a headset and be a sports broadcaster from his time with ESPN to his time with CBS. The amount of events that he has called, the amount of uh, moments that he has crafted and touched. You think about Doug Flutie on the Hail Mary. Like I think about the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl when he said this one's for all the Tostitos, which was a great product placement and, and not a bad final call. And then you even think of things as simple as, you are looking live. Not a complicated phrase. I mean, it's just a matter of fact statement. You're looking live. This is a live picture, and you are looking at it. But he turned it into a hallmark and a staple. So that within the first two seconds of a game that he was broadcasting, you knew who you were listening to. When Brent Musburger says, you are looking live. And it's amazing how many people know him and know that. I went to college with a guy uh, who, who would just say, you are looking live to like anything. 
Like you are looking live at Chipotle. You are looking live at the living room. It, it, it's just an iconic phrase and saying. And I think it's indicative of who he is and what he means to sports broadcasting. That the first words out of his mouth are words that everybody knows because everybody watches his work. So congratulations to Brent Musburger on a long career, a healthy career, um, and a healthy retirement. And enjoy whatever endeavors he takes on next. It's with that, or I kind of wanted to dovetail real quick before we get into Tim Grubbs. There was an article on the big lead this week where they talked about the 30 most powerful talents in sports media. And I think there were two play-by-play guys on it. They had the the Sunday Night Football team. Al Michaels is on there with Chris Collinsworth. And then Joe Buck is on there. Joe Buck is number six. There's a handful of honorable mentions as well. Uh, Costas is in the honorable mentions. I think there might be a couple other guys that are play-by-play guys. Um, i got the list pulled up in front of me now. No, it's just Costas. So on this list of 30 and then some honorable mentions... Like 40. Oh, Jim Nance is on there. So four of maybe 40 guys they have are play-by-play guys. And it's... I The, the umbrage I take with it, and I, I would say this much, the article says that everybody's going to agree, disagree, and have different arguments for different things. But based on what we just said about Brent Musburger, how can you not have more play-by-play guys? on a list of the most powerful talents in sports media today. They're not necessarily the personality-driven guys. You know, Stephen A. Smith was number one on that list. Number three was Skip Bayless. Two is Colin Cowherd. Five are Wilbon and Kornheiser. So you've got some personality-driven guys off the top there. But, I mean, if you think about the most iconic people in sports media, it's play-by-play guys. They're the ones you hear the most of. What makes March Madness great? Obviously the basketball, but if you ask any true fan of the media of March Madness, what makes March Madness great? It's Gus Johnson going nuts. Like it's there there's there's a an inherent power over sports that a play by play announcer has. Um, so I, I mean I like the list. There's a lot of good names on it, and it's arbitrary, and the article says that. But the only umbrage I would take would be more play-by-play guys on there. Uh, Tarico's not mentioned. Obviously, Nance and Costas I would put in that list more so than, you know, guys you could make an argument for. But uh, just saw that this week, thought it was interesting. And, and speaking up for the play-by-play guy, thought maybe there could have been a few more on there. All right, anyway, let's get to the podcast for today. Tim Grubbs is our guest. He is the voice of the New Orleans Baby Cakes, formerly the New Orleans Zephyrs. He's been there for 16 years and uh, has taken the whole minor league baseball path, came up through A-ball, then double-A, then wound up in New Orleans. And Tim has some interesting stories to tell. And there's going to be some interesting topics we get to that are different than some other podcasts we've done in the past. Uh, We're going to talk about the business of minor league baseball right off the top with baby cakes and (laughs) what it's going to be like to have to say that on the air and how you incorporate the baby cakes lead three to two, like how you make that sound good. Uh, so that's in the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, meeting his wife in Iowa, keeping in mind he's never worked in Iowa. Uh, so that's an interesting story. Uh, we're going to talk about Katrina and what it was like being a baseball broadcaster 
in New Orleans at the time of Katrina and what it was like being a member of a sports team and a citizen of New Orleans at the time of Katrina. We'll get into that. We talk about Mike Coolbaugh, who, of course, uh, passed away after his time in New Orleans. He was struck in the head uh, coaching a base by a line drive. That's why coach, beach coaches all wear helmets now. Uh, we'll talk about Mike Coolball. We'll talk about what Vladimir Guerrero was like in A-ball. Uh, lots of different random topics today, but uh, I think it's a conversation you, you will enjoy with Tim Grubbs. He is the voice of the New Orleans Baby Cakes, which is where our conversation starts. Tim, your thoughts on working for a team called the Baby Cakes here on Play by Play Cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I first found out, um, I you know initially shook my head because I was like, oh, no. You know, how am I going to be able to respond from this? But, uh, you know, I found out, I guess, back in September, uh, we didn't unveil the name until November. And I was involved with, um, you know, when we were going to do the rebrand, when we were going to launch it and all that stuff. And I think about a month after, um, you know, working with it, I, I realized, you know what, this is going to be fun. You know what I mean? And I, <laughs> I, I'm not just saying that because I work for the team, but I, I really just started thinking of, of the different things, uh, you know, when you, when there's a p- pitching change, do I say that there's a diaper change and, and I probably won't, but <laughs> it, you know, but when you talk to fans and stuff, you, it's been fun to be able to say that stuff. And, you know, you know, can we, will we give away rattles at a game and will we, you know, on the one thing I did say is, uh, you know, when LeBron James, you know, he gets the powder right before the game to get excited. You know, I could say right before a game that, you know, we can, we could do the powder and all that sort of stuff and, and splash it up in the air. And, and that would be fun, you know, and the team, by the way, I mean, on the broadcast and our owner and our GM is, is in, has been in our Jersey say cakes, they actually don't say baby cakes. So I think a lot of times in the broadcast, it'll be, you know, the cakes lead the Redbirds three to two or the cakes lead the Cubs, you know, four to one cakes lead the isotopes or whatever. You know what I mean? So I'm going to probably say cakes a lot more than I would say actual baby cakes. But no, that is the team name. But I'm excited about it. There is something to be I, cakes has a nice ring to it, too, actually, though. I kind of enjoy that. So that works out for you. Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, obviously it's it's unique in its own right. And I think, you know, nicknaming the ballpark, the bakery or nicknaming uh, the stadium, the crib, you know, I I don't know exactly where we'll go with this, but (laughs) we're going to the crib, (laughs) you know, but somehow, some way it'll be something along those lines. And I think we're going to have fun with it, you know, and, you know, maybe give away mixing bowls or doing stuff. You know what I mean? I think it'll be interesting over the next year or two, which how this all goes. And, you know, do we lean more towards, that we're a bakery and, and we do a lot of cake oriented stuff, or do we lean more towards or a nursery or a crib and do more baby stuff? You know, I'm, I'm, and I know with talking to uh, our media relations guys and promotions girl and, and all that sort of stuff, but the type of music um, they, they did a, a search and I think there's over 300 songs that have baby in it, you know, and they oh, were God, looking at have like Bieber all night. Yeah, we'll have Bieber and Britney Spears and, you know, but then there's also a lot of songs that have cake in it, you know, Beyonce song and all that sort of stuff. So I I think the music, both at home and the road, I mean, I tell you right now, I can tell you when we're probably on the road, I'm I'm fully anticipating that our players are going to get abused with a lot of baby stuff as they come up to bat. So, um, you know, the baby crying sound effects, you know how minor league baseball is. They're going to try to 
They're going to try to capitalize on that, so I'm excited about it. The sponsorship opportunities are endless, though, because this diaper change brought to you by Depends really opens up a whole other window for you guys. It really does. Um, obviously, you know you know how it is. It, you know, I'm a person who part of my role with the team is sponsorships, and it's hard to crack into those you know, corporate companies because none of them are based here in New Orleans. But, you know, you never know with Huggies and Pampers, you know, once the team, once we start playing games and I think that starts getting out there, it definitely could open that up. And like I said, I, I think there's definitely a lot of possibilities with the baby end of it and with the, the cake end of it. You know, I mean, you never know. I mean, it could be Duncan Hines Field, you know, <laughs> giant mixing bowls and we're, we're, you know, making cakes at the ballpark and all that stuff. So it, 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 it'll be interesting to see, like I said, what, what angle, you know, this ends up going. I know which way, you know, we're treating it in the off season and we're excited and we're selling a lot of merchandise and, you know, really educating America in what a king cake is. You know, when I moved here, I didn't know what a king cake was, and I didn't really understand the concept of a plastic baby being inside a king cake. And to me, that's a choking hazard, and I see lawsuits <laughs> written all over that. But for some reason, down here in Louisiana and in New Orleans, it's a big deal, and everybody's accepted it, that that's a king cake baby. And, you know, Brandiose and, and, and our ownership group has turned it into baby cakes. Give me your thoughts on that that revolution in minor league baseball as a whole, because it's something that I, I feel like I don't know how long it's gone on. Probably we're probably at about 10 years now, uh, and I don't know where it started. I don't know if it was the Iron Pigs where it really kind of took off in, in Lehigh Valley. Um, but I feel like every year now there's like nine new teams that will change their name to something completely ridiculous and fun. Um, and I'm just waiting until like the Tigers and the Lions and the Bears are all gone. I give it like five years. <laughs> you know, when I first got into baseball is in, in the nineties and I thought crot, my first team was the Hickory Crawdads. And I thought that was, that was original. Yeah. That was an original, like, and Crawdads, you know, people eat Crawdads here in Louisiana. Um, up there, it's more used as bait. You know, that's what you put on the end of your fishing pole and, you know, cast it in and try to catch something. But that with the mud hens and the crawdads and the mud cats, I guess, were the first wave of doing things. And but now, you know, and then you had the isotopes that kind of really went out there, you know. And I mean, if you watch The Simpsons, you kind of understood it. But if you didn't, you were like, what? True. And and obviously flying squirrels has taken it to another level. Yeah. And you, you've mentioned it like in the last 10 years, it is every year they seem to outdo each other. And um, what Binghamton looked like they were going to be the stud muffins. Oh, thank goodness. And then, they went ponies. And, and they went ponies. And actually, <laughs> rumble ponies is cool. I really like that. I like but, it a lot. You know, I, I was a traditionalist, you know, I, you know, I grew up a Pittsburgh Pirates fan and, you know, I kind of liked, you know, just the standard name and all that sort of stuff. But then again, I was the same guy that was against the wild card, um, you know, <laughs> while ago. And, and now I think it's great. So, I, you know, you have to evolve, you know, and I think especially in minor league baseball, you know, yeah, teams like the Iowa Cubs, you know, that's standard. And I and I get why they aren't going to change. And and the Memphis Redbirds, you know, a little spinoff of their major league team, the St. Louis Cardinals. I understand why they're not going to change. But Zephyrs really didn't have that much of a, you know, it was a team named from Denver. And it did work here in New Orleans because we had a roller coaster named the Zephyr back in the day. But that roller coaster was torn down in 1983. So, you know, the people that did know it, you know, it was kind of evolving out. So, I think it's fun. You know, I mean, when the Chihuahuas and El Paso named its team, the Chihuahuas 
four years ago. And I remember reading the press release and, and getting it on my email and just laughing and said, I can't wait to go to El Paso so I can make fun of this. And I got to that city. And before I ever stepped foot in the stadium, just walking around downtown El Paso and, and just grabbing lunch, I saw all the people with the hats and I saw all the people with the shirts and, you know, and it was the way the brand it was. And by the time I got to the ballpark and, and saw all the little paintings of Chihuahuas everywhere, I was convinced that this, I was not surprised that this was the way a lot of minor league teams are going to go because not only was it cute, it was very catchy and it, you know, it made things a lot of fun. Now let's dive into the broadcasting side of things, if we can. When did you first? When did you first get the itch for this? When did you want to become a baseball announcer? I guess you know, for me, um, you know, I, I, you know, I always remember playing wiffle ball, and I remember being in the backyard of my house, you know, with a, a rubber baseball or a tennis ball, just throwing up against the wall, and you know, as I did that, a lot of times I would be talking you know, broadcast, you know what I mean? I don't think I really knew at the time I wanted to be a broadcaster at the time I was pitching a perfect game in the world series or, you know, or, or something along those lines. But, you know, I'd have to say probably 10 or 11 years old. Um, you know, I, I was into, I was into sports at a young age, you know, I was, I was small football, baseball, basketball. And I think I knew pretty quickly that, you know, this, I probably wasn't going to be that guy that was going to be, you know, a major league baseball player. And, sure. Uh, so I think right away, I mean, I think I knew really young that there was a good chance that I'd want to broadcast. Um, you know, I was the last year I played any type of real organized sports other than like CYO or, you know, intramural type of stuff was my freshman year in high school. And um, I was fortunate that the high school that I, I grew up and went to in a suburb of Pittsburgh, we had a club that you actually joined it and you actually broadcast the high school football games and the high school basketball games and you rotated around, you did play-by-play or you did color or you did uh, camera and then they actually showed it on a cable access channel on like monday nights so as a sophomore in high school i was calling our high school football games and stuff like that and i just stuck with it and did it for three years in high school and you know ended up doing a lot of games and getting the experience and so by the time i was a senior in high school i knew for sure this was definitely what the path that i wanted to take how did you angle yourself in college that being said uh, going into it knowing that's what you wanted to do uh, how did you attack it as an 18 year old saying this is what i want to how this is how i want to set myself up well you know it's funny cuz i was even though i was doing and i had a lot of years um, the funny thing about it is I never did baseball in high school. I was doing football, basketball, and hockey. <laughs> um, I even did a little bit of wrestling because baseball up there, high school baseball is not really that big of a deal. But, you know, when I told my guidance counselor, when they met with me about choosing a major, choosing a college, um, they steered me away from doing communications or doing broadcasting because they said, you know what, that's just a too difficult job to get into. You're, you know, you're just setting yourself up for failure. So it's funny that you said that because when I originally went to college, I, I, even though I still wanted to be a broadcaster, I did go in as like a business management, sport management major, because obviously, even though it was sport management, you had a lot of business classes. And if, if the broadcasting thing didn't work out and I didn't end up in sports, that at least I could have a fallback. And, you know, I took marketing classes, I took communications classes. So I did have that little bit of a background when I went to Robert Morris of doing, um, you know, business. So I wasn't completely, 
you know, alienate it where I could only do broadcasting. What's it like for you climbing the minor league ladder? I know we mentioned Hickory, and, and you were in, in Winston-Salem. Rest in peace, Wally the Warthog. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you, you made the stop in Tennessee before winding up in, uh, in New Orleans. Kind of take me on your journey of uh, what it was like for you climbing the ranks of minor league baseball, because I know everybody's trip through that path is a, is a little bit different. It is very different. And, you know, obviously getting into minor league baseball, you know, I get, you know, you do as well, probably get a lot of calls from kids that want to be broadcasters. And you're like, you know, it's right place, right time. You know, it's, it's, you know, you gotta, it's tough to get into. And, um, I got very fortunate, you know, I got into Hickory, did that for one year as a number two broadcaster, basically as an intern, um, that opened the door to Winston Salem, um, which I worked there for a few years. And then it opened the door to go to Knoxville and, and ultimately the team changed its name while I was there when they opened the new stadium. And it was one year Hickory, three years, Winston Salem, three years, Knoxville, and then off to new Orleans. And I was going to triple a at relatively a pretty young age. So it was coming pretty easily to me. I thought, you know what I mean? That I was able to move up the ranks and then I got to new Orleans and I anticipated being here two or three more years, maybe four. And, you know, then move into the major leagues. And well, I've been here 16 years. <laughs> so it's, um, obviously I love my job. Um, you know, the one thing that I always tell people that, you know, it, I think, you know, I, I do corporate sales. I'm the traveling secretary, the traveling coordinator. I'm the one that books all the travel for the team. So, and I didn't do that initially. So over the course of time, I've taken on more roles and more responsibility. And, you know, now broadcasting is just one segment of probably, you know, diff six different jobs that you have, you know, my main aspect, you know, working in minor league baseball now is to sell the outfield fence signs and to sell, you know, who's going to be the pr presenter of starting lineups on the radio broadcast and who's, you know, we try to sell. So, um, you know, that's the main thing, you know, so there's a lot of, even though I'm a broadcaster and I told you, we went to school to do that. There's a lot of the business aspect that I still use, you know, and I'm still out and I'm in these marketing meetings to help promote the team and promotional meetings. And I think the one advantage that us broadcasters have is, you know, when I go to Iowa or I go to Omaha and I go to Albuquerque and I see what these other ballparks do, yep. I, you know, I, ha I don't have to read Ben's blog on minorleaguebaseball.com. I actually physically see it in each stadium that I go to. So it does make things a little easier. The fact that, you know, I get to see these ideas and when I'm in these promotional meetings that I can just kind of rip that idea from a different ballpark and try to tailor make it to new orleans yeah, and hey i saw this here and it did not work let's not try that uh, <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. Tr trust me on this one i know you love it now but um what do you wish you knew then that you know now about that process are there things you wish you would have done differently or things you wish you would have known along that road now in hindsight you know it's a it's a good question and i don't really know how to put it into words i mean yeah definitely um there's definitely a lot of things. Um, obviously when I first, you know, got out of school and was getting jobs, I mean, I was on the phone a lot, you know, this was early days of the internet. So you couldn't just email people. And I thought it was great. You know, I was on the phone calling general managers and trying to meet as many people as I did, you know, and obviously going to Winston-Salem and I was, I was actually doing women's basketball and, you know, for Wake Forest when I was there, you know, a handful of games a year. And then I went to Knoxville and, you know, I really just became, you know, a baseball person. And I, I didn't do much stuff in the off season. I didn't do any basketball. I didn't do anything and came to new Orleans in the first couple of years, it was the same way. And then I finally jumped in and met somebody Sean Kelly, who's now the broadcaster for the new Orleans Pelicans. Um, and he was the Tulane broadcaster, the men's basketball. And, you know, he got me doing women's basketball games for Tulane. And 
I guess the one thing is, you know, right now, I mean, I enjoyed, I do a couple of games a year on ESPN three and the American digital network and a couple of things like that. I guess the one thing is I stalled there for a few years of branching out and doing other sports. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I came up as a radio brick. I looked very young when I was 22. I looked like I was 12. So I don't think I could have been on TV quite that early. Join the club. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one thing that, you know, I guess maybe just networking and, and, you know, I was, I was having fun with the baseball and obviously it's a lot of work, 144 games in 152 days that when I got to the off season, I just didn't want to do extra where now I'm just thirsty for more games. And, you know, because even though I do sales and I have a lot of roles with the, the baby cakes, I, I enjoy, that's what kind of motivates me. And that's what gets my blood going is having these winter games, you know, these basketball games. And I get really excited about it because in baseball, you get seven games a week, sometimes eight games in a given week depending on the schedule and with basketball, you know, I had one game this week and I got a game next week. So it, I, I spent a lot more time prepping and I get really excited about doing that one game and I put a lot into it. What's the most minor league experience you've had as a broadcaster? Like I'm just thinking, you know, that says that screams minor league baseball that you've experienced in uh, 20 years. Well, the early years, um, and it's, 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 it's my very first year, Charleston, West Virginia. I was there as a member of the Hickory Crawdads. And the old ballpark, this was the Charleston, West Virginia Alley Cats. Now the team, the West Virginia Power, but obviously they built a new ballpark and it's a different team. But there was a train that ran right above the home run wall in the outfield. So when that train came cruising by, it was literally almost a scene out of Brewster's Millions. I mean, that that train (laughs) was actually on the field, but this one was just above it. So when that train was coming, there was really no sense calling the game. The game was going on because even if you killed the crowd, Mike, it was just too loud and too overpowering. And then they had the toast guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. The toast. Man. Um, yes. The toast man. Yeah. Yes. And I remember being like, wow, this is like minor league baseball at its best. You know, this is a scene straight out of bull Durham, you know, which, you know, bull Durham was, you know, a movie when I was young, you know, and, and, you know, you watch it and you're like, that's what minor league baseball is about. And then you see it now and you're like, you know what? They really, it, it was a little exaggerated, but that, that movie is pretty dead on. Uh, who's the most interesting person you've interacted with in your time? I imagine most you've seen some pretty interesting guys. You know, the guy that I look back on, I guess, and, and he's still a friend of mine to this day, that, that kind of really had it steered me in the right direction is my very first year in New Orleans. Um, we were AAA for the Astros, and uh, a, ki- a guy that grew up here in New Orleans was signed in the offseason. It was Kirk Bollinger. Okay. Um, he had some big league time with the Expos and the Astros and the Red Sox. We signed him as a free agent that year, and he was a minor leaguer. Um, and I remember on the on the very first road trip, we were in Des Moines, Iowa, and you know I remember that first road trip sitting at a hotel bar, and it was like forty degrees outside, and we had a beer after the game after we froze during the game, you know, because you know here we are, a New Orleans team. Op- opening day was in Iowa. It didn't make sense, but you know how things work. And he was just telling me about the city of New Orleans. And even though I was a northerner who had spent a couple of time, a couple of years in North Carolina and a couple of years in Tennessee, I, you know, Louisiana is a different animal, especially New Orleans. And I remember him just telling me stories of different things, how I need to interact with fans and how I need it. And I think it definitely set me on the path to where I could be accepted and and fit in in a city like New Orleans where, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, love transplants like other cities do. Best player you've seen 
play. Best play, best player. Oh wow! Um, you know, my very first year in minor league baseball, I saw some incredible players. Um, that was the 1995 South Atlantic League season. Uh, Carlos Lee was on our team in Hickory. Um, Andrew Jones was coming up with Macon um, with the Braves. Vladimir Guerrero was with the Expos in um, in Albany, Georgia. He was an Albany polecat. What's What's um, Vladimir Guerrero look like in a ball? Oh, <laughs> he was a much smaller guy. He was uh, he was young. He was like 17 years old when he was there. So, but he was a gift. Uh, Andrew Jones was probably the best. You know, the other guy in the. You know who was in that league that year that that was a terrible player and I, but ended up being a Hall of Famer was Todd Helton. Um, you know, he was a Nashville tourist that year. That was the year that I look back on. And even though it was low A, and they always say the percentages of a low A player making it to the big leagues are so low and it's so extreme. I mean, the fact that I just rallied off all of those names. And That's I'm a good probably, year. I'm missing some people. Um, those guys were all incredible. Um, George Springer I saw play a few years ago. Obviously, when you're in AAA, you already know the name. You know, back that year, these guys were all 17, 18, 19 years old. You didn't know these guys were going to make it. Where here at AAA, you already know. You, there's so much momentum behind that train, you know, when they get to this level that, you know, that a Springer was going to be a really good player. I mean, this year we saw Alex Bregman come through here, saw Chris Bryant, you know, who the games that I've broadcast for Chris Bryant he, were incredible. And I knew he was going to be a really good Paul player, but you know, I'd have to probably look back at that first year just because I was young. It was my first year in broadcasting and, and say probably Andrew Jones at that 18 years old was probably the best player. He had three home runs in a game that I called. So that, that was pretty impressive. What's forging relationships like as a broadcaster for you, um, particularly at the AAA level now, um, and particularly that you've been there a long time now, too, so I'm sure guys know who you are, uh, so there's that that certainly helps you, but also you're you're older than a lot of the guys now, whereas you know when we all break in, we're all the same age as the players, uh, so it's a little bit different from that standpoint, but um, how do you go about forging those relationships and uh, getting the information that you need, but also creating actual like human to human friendships. So uh, you actually know these guys and it's not so much of a, a, just taking advantage of somebody for the sake of a broadcast. Right. No. And it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, we spend so much time together with them, you know, in the airports, um, sitting out layovers, you know, and we're, we're at the airport an hour and a half before our flight, we fly commercial. So, you know, there's nothing easy about our travel, but the problem is a lot of times that's six o'clock in the morning, four <laughs> o'clock in the morning. And you can't have a conversation with someone then because one, you're tired and you're just sleepwalking and they're this, you don't want to bother them because of that, but you know, getting to the ballpark early. And, you know, the one thing that, you know, you have to be able to be careful about is the clubhouse is their living room. That's their home. Um, you know, just like the visiting radio booth or the home radio booth is our home. And you don't want to, I don't want to hang out in the clubhouse too much because I want them to be comfortable and I don't want them to think that I'm in their space bothering them. But at the same time, you know, standing around the cage, you know, during batting practice, you can chit chat here and there, but you don't want to do too much conversation because obviously they're at work. Um, you know, they're trying to work on their craft and different things like that. So it is difficult. And I would that's one of the things I've talked to, you know, interns and young broadcasters that have come through about there's a time and a place to have a conversation with guys. Obviously, some guys are easier than others, you know, that you see what home, you know, I always geography is a big deal to me. You know, I've traveled quite a bit thanks to minor league baseball. And, you know, if I, you know, I know where guys from hometown and if I've ever been there. You know, I watch a lot of diners, drive-ins and dives and different things like that. And, you know, I may remember a, a restaurant or may remember something unique about their area. And I think if you can 
talk to ge- talk geography or get get on the same page as someone, even if they're a person that's kind of shy and an introvert that doesn't really want to talk, that'll open them up. And then before you know it, you know, you're hearing stories that you may never necessarily be able to use on the radio, but, you know, at least it may open up the page so you can talk to them about it. You can get other information that it helps the broadcast. And it's just not, you know, this is just a boring three, two pitch, you know, ground ball to first base that you can add that other spice into it to, you know, add some character to the guy. Uh, How much time do you spend at the cage? You know, I try to go down there, you know, being in New Orleans, you know, when we get into June, July and August, um, (laughs) you know, I don't try to spend too much time down there because it's, you know, 100 degrees outside at 3.30 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And a lot of times we end up hitting inside because, you know, the heat and humidity. But on the road, I try to do it a lot, Um, you know, especially when it's good weather. And, you know, I try to hang out. I try to get to the ballpark every day earlier and earlier. I mean, I swear every year I get to the ballpark earlier. Um, and it just because, I mean, these players are getting to the stadium earlier and it's just a chance to talk to guys, but you know, I try to spend, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes down there. I mean, BP is usually 45. So, you know, sometimes I'm down there the whole time. Sometimes I'm only down there for a segment. You know, I always try to do the pregame interview for the radio show, either right before or immediately after, depending on what city we're in and you know what the situation is. What do you try to glean from being at the cage? Uh, you know, that you, you mentioned, obviously those guys are at work. How much are you talking to them? How much are you just trying to observe? What are you trying to observe while you're down there? And how does that help you on air? You know, sometimes I am talking to them, but I try not to too much. Um, you know, obviously, I, I I observe just to hear what the hitting coach is saying to them or what other players are talking to them about. Um, obviously, I, I, I'm not learning much because, you know, I can't come close to doing what any of them do. And, you know, what I mean, <laughs> you're sitting down there watching, you know, they're making slight adjustments and you're like, well, I don't, I don't even know if I could hit the ball how much contact I'd make, even if they threw me in there at this point. But I think it's just the camaraderie. And I think if you're around, you know, and they see that you're down there and you're working hard, um, they open up a little more because they know that you're just not, you're not clocking in at six fifty-five, and you're not just showing up and broadcasting the game. You're there with them at four hours before the game, you know, watching them. And even though you might not know what adjustments they're making or completely comprehend what they're doing, they know that you're there. And, you know, I think they're, they're a little bit more satisfactory to know that you're on the same path as them. I think some of those guys originally don't know that don't realize that even though we're the broadcaster, that our goal is the same goal as theirs. And that is to be at the major league level. I want to ask you about a couple of guys in particular you've dealt with. Um, and I think he was there when you were there. His name is really well known for fairly sad reason, but uh, you broadcast with, with Mike Coolball when he was in New Orleans, did you not? Yes, I did. He had a tremendous year here. He had uh, it's one of the few Zephyrs to ever have, uh, because we're playing in New Orleans and the ball doesn't fly here, he had a 30 home run he- year here. Um, he had a tremendous season. He played one season here. Obviously, I saw him play quite a bit. Um, with some other teams, both before he was in New Orleans and then he went to Round Rock right after he left here. I really liked him. He was a good guy. Um, enjoyed hanging out with him and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the day I did not know, you know, the night that it happened, but I remember exactly where I was when I heard um, I, we had a day game in Albuquerque. Um, I was walking into the um, Continental Breakfast in Albuquerque and Jason Alfaro, who had been a teammate of Mike Coolball when they were in New Orleans a couple of years before, was kind of in the corner and, and you could tell there was something wrong with him. And uh, he, he, you know, I saw him and, you know, and he called me over and he told me the news that he had just heard, 
you know, what had happened the night before. And I remember his face and I remember his reaction to this day. And, uh, you know, he was a good guy and, you know, it's, it's very sad. Um, and obviously every time I go to round rock, I see, you know, his numbers retired there and, you know, it's certainly, uh, you know, his family's great in baseball and, you know, you see his, there was that thing on outside the lines, uh, you know, or E60 this past year. And it, it's great to see his family moving on and, and doing well and, and honoring him. Is that something you talked about on the air? Um, and, and how do you broach a subject like that and, and weave it on air the right way? You know, that would have been one of those difficult things to do without, um, you know, I have a broadcast partner at home, um, Ron Swoboda, who played um, a lot of years with the, the New York Mets. And I do the home games. He's the analyst. And, you know, him and I talked about it before the game. And he's got a real way of, of doing that sort of thing. And uh, he did a great job. Him and I talked about it Um I think the next day, because I think it was the end of our road trip and we talked about it. I remember we had a TV game a couple of days later in which we talked about and we were able to have highlights and we did a little tribute uh, of him on uh, Cox Sports Television. And I remember they did a really nice job of it. And um, ultimately, I think he really helped in a situation like that, because that's a difficult thing to talk about. Um, One of the other guys I was curious about, I was in Buffalo in 2009 and Buffalo obviously became the Mets after they were in New Orleans. Curious your thoughts on working with Ken Obergfell uh, as a manager. Well, Ken Obergfell was one of my favorites. You know, we, you know, in minor league baseball, we have different managers from year to year. And he was certainly, um, he was one of the managers that I really enjoyed. Um, you know, after the game, he was a guy that you could question, you know, and not necessarily, you know, Monday morning quarterback him, but you could talk to him about why did you do that? You know, and obviously I've never been a manager and I've never been in the hot seat to where I would have to make a decision on the fly like that. But he was awesome about all that stuff. And that's why I really, and plus I just got along with him. Um, so Oberfell is one of the, my favorite managers that I've dealt with over the years. I've, I've got a branch off, but I was thinking while you were talking about Oberfell and, and I want to get into a separate kind of topic here. Uh, when I was with him, uh, Ben Wagner had asked him, and I forget how we got there, but the conversation was like he had asked, we were talking about personal stuff, and he had asked Obi where he met his wife. And Ken says, in a bar like everybody else. Uh, <laughs> so that being said, because this, is, this was the first thing that, that uh, you and I said to each other when I, when I asked you to, to do the podcast, um, tell me the story of being a minor league baseball broadcaster and how you met your wife. <laughs> in a bar yeah, just like, <laughs> just like everybody else yeah. um but it's a great story and you, you know you, you, i know you love it because you know <laughs> it, it, it's very appropriate to this story so um 2005 i was part of a team here in new orleans with the zephyrs who had to evacuate and we missed our last three home games because of hurricane katrina was on its way um, so we went to Oklahoma city, um, played four games in Oklahoma city. It's hard to believe on the day hurricane Katrina hit the city of new Orleans. Um, the Zephyrs did play a game that day, um, which hard people, people don't realize that. Um, <laughs> we always, we always used to use that as like a trivia question. Like, Hey, did the Zephyrs win on the day? Of course it got rained out. No, we played it, <laughs> but no, a couple of days later, the team went to Des Moines, Iowa. Um, we had a game on a Friday night in Iowa and after the game, uh, you know, uh, the media relations guy for the iCubs, Jeff Lance, and um, the general manager of the Zephyrs at the time, Mike Schlein. The three of us all went out for a drink after the game, and we're sitting at this bar called Drink, very appropriately, um, in uh, suburbs of Des Moines. And we're standing there, and this girl turns to me, and she says to me, 
where is Ball State? And why are they? <laughs> and what is the deal with that team name? And I go, why do you want to know about Ball State? And she goes, well, they're playing the Hawks tomorrow. And, you know, the Hawks to me are the Atlanta Hawks. And I'm like, what? I don't really get what she's talking about <laughs> so i strike up a conversation and then she explains it's the iowa hawkeyes which i guess i wasn't thinking that hawkeyes was shortened up there sure and because i what i do know the big 10 pretty well and they played their first football game the next day it was you know the first weekend in saturday and ball state was in town to play iowa and i said yeah it's the ball state you know the cardinals you know they're muncie indiana and i started <laughs> talking to her and she goes how do you know all this and i was like i'm a sports fan and 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 when well, first of all, when I said that that I didn't know who the Hawks were, she obviously knew right away that I was not from around there. And she asked where I was from, and I told her New Orleans. She immediately didn't believe me because you know Katrina had happened two days before, and I had to show her my driver's license, and I showed it to her, and it says New Orleans, Louisiana, Louisiana, you know, and. It struck up a conversation and she asked me a bunch of questions, whether or not my house was okay or my apartment. And obviously at that point, I didn't know nothing. I didn't know any of that. You know, I didn't know if anything was, you know, we didn't have any idea. Mm. Um, so we had a good conversation that night and had a good time. And, um, the next day, you know, we hung out again, the next day we hung out again. And then, uh, you know, we stayed in contact and, uh, I ended up visiting her about, um, about a month and a half later. And then, we saw each other every month for an entire year, and then she eventually moved to New Orleans, and, and three years later, we got married. So uh, Ball State has a lot to do with that, and in our two-year wedding anniversary, I think it was either two or three years, I actually got online and bought her a Ball State t-shirt <laughs> to kind of commemorate you know, how, how we got our first conversation started. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, we, we might be able to help you out with some swag at some point here too. Um, how, how does that? How does that all happen? Because I feel like so many times us as announcers, you know, we get wrapped up in what we do. Uh, our time is 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 weird. Not not that we don't have a lot of time. Sometimes you know, it's just different at a lot of times. Um, how do you? How does that all come together? Where you meet somebody in Iowa, and you meet somebody on the road. And like it's it's an acceptable thing that you just kind of go along with. I feel like a lot of people nowadays um, wouldn't that that wouldn't fly. How does that all come together for you as a broadcaster, where you actually made that work? You know, long distance relationships are very difficult, but I think that really helped us out. Um, you know, I had had a, several other relationships along the way, and you know, there'd been plenty of times where I'd meet a girl in, in September or October, and I'd be able to maintain the relationship all off season because I had some time off, and I'd be able to take her to dinner or go to a movie or play putt putt. You know, but then baseball season starts, and you know what our schedule's like. You know, you have eight days off. You know, from April through September. And a lot of times those days off are not even in your home city. Yeah. You know, it's somewhere else. And, you know, a lot of the relationships derailed, but with, with Emily, it was, it was special because, you know, obviously, you know, cell phones and text messaging had all come along at that point. So it made things a little easier where we could text each other. We can call each other. Um, you know, we were able to travel to see each other once a month, but we talked to each other a lot. So we had, we had grown great communication skills and, I, I, at first I was like, am I wasting my time? You know, I, we both, we had that conversation with each other when she visited new Orleans. Um, I think it was the second time right around the holidays. Are we wasting our time buying each other gifts and, you know, or is this really going to work? And, but I think we had such a strong connection that, that we made it work. Um, 
10 months later, she moved to New Orleans and, you know, she fell in love with the city. I think a lot of it because, you know, she lived in Iowa. She was born and raised in Iowa where it was, you know, Indiana like weather, you know, where here it is December or January and it's 30 degrees up there and it's 70 here. And she would visit and be like, this is what your weather's like in the winter. (laughs) And I, I think that helped get her to move here. And, um, you know, obviously our summers are rough, but you could spend a lot of time in air conditioning at that point. But I think that really helped. And just having really good communication skills. She's not a big baseball fan, but she is a sports fan. We watch a lot of football together. We don't watch a lot of baseball together. Yeah, you've only got one day a month or two days a month, so you may as well spend it. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're here or there. Like, you only got one day, so use it the right way. Um, so I guess that, yeah, in a lot of ways, that does make some sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you about Katrina, too, and uh, and what that was like going through um, as a baseball broadcaster, first and foremost? Because, uh, first off, were you did you have did you have broadcasts canceled because of that? Yeah, no, we did have. I didn't broadcast another game the rest of the season. We played uh, eight more games after um, Katrina had hit. Um, I remember uh, our phones didn't work real well because we my cell phone was a five hundred four area code, which was New Orleans, which is the way the cell phone towers are. But you could text message people, and you know that was really my first experience in text message. You know, I wasn't texting a whole lot before then. Um, I remember text messaging the general manager of the radio station and saying, Hey, what's the deal? Can we get on tonight? Cause we were in Des Moines, we were in Oklahoma city and he texted me, um, not tonight. Um, we're having some issues with the transmitter, obviously. Um, we'll probably be on the air tomorrow. So I was like, okay. So, you know, I still got prepared for the game. Like, you know, I still was at the ballpark. I watched the game like anything. I even kept score. Um, the second day it was in the middle of that first game that we played on the road that uh, Monday night is when the, um, the levees broke. And I started, we all the news was starting to break that the city was flooding and all that sort of stuff. So then he text messaged me the next day that, uh, we would not be doing the games at least for the next few days. And then ultimately we never broadcast the rest of those games. Um, the games were on the internet back then, but you couldn't just the way things were we couldn't just patch into the internet and the other thing is it wouldn't have probably been useful because you know zephyrsbaseball.com which was our official website back then um didn't even work so even though it was hosted by minor league baseball there was some issues with it so yeah i I got some games where i could just sit there and watch baseball what was it like as a team um and particularly for you as as a as a front man for that team um being part of the the rebuild there and and the the healing i guess the thing that people turn to that's not life yeah at that no point. that that first day like i said we won that game um in oklahoma city the first day before the levy and then the next day um i don't we didn't win another game for for several days i think we lost like six in a row after that and our manager at the time tim foley made the team turn cnn and off in the clubhouse before a game because it was just so depressing not that the team wasn't going to the playoffs the team wasn't going to do anything anyway but you know i mean we're our season was over but i think the team took the field so depressed because of this was they were showing aerial photographs of um you know restaurants that these guys had been to and and you know malls that these guys had been to and you know all the city you know you saw all the flooding and you saw the water up to the rooftops and stuff like that and but you know once we got and guys were asking questions uh, obviously things are i didn't own a house back then um you know i was unattached really back then um i had a little studio one bedroom apartment uptown which all the reports were that i 
I thought I would be okay, at least from flooding, but you didn't know about looting or anything like that because you kept hearing those mass reports. But, you know, after the, um, after the season ended, none of the guys, you know, a lot of guys had cars back here in New Orleans. They could not fly back here. Um, some guys had a difficult time comprehending that just because I don't think they realized the magnitude of what had happened in this city. Um, but then, you know, they got, I didn't get back here. I flew back to my parents' house from Des Moines after that Labor Day game. And I got back there, let's see, um, you know, like two days after the season ended. And then I was there for about two weeks before I made it back to New Orleans. And then I finally got back to New Orleans. And, uh, you know, I remember I landed in Baton Rouge because the New Orleans airport wasn't open. And it was, you know, the city was very unrecognizable. Um, I came back for two days. And then uh, the guy that owned the team back at the time, um, Don Beaver, he owned a golf tournament. So I then went uh, helped out for the golf tournament for the next uh, month. And then I finally came back to New Orleans. And it was it was an interesting time because there was curfew. Uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of restaurants. Like you had to get your grocery stores and everything closed at like six o'clock at night. And, you know, even McDonald's and Wendy's and stuff closed at six o'clock. And it was a strange time. But, you know, when that team took the field that April, when we had opening day and we were the first sports teams back because the Saints, obviously the Saints didn't come back till that following September. You know, the Dome had all the damage. The Hornets, the NBA team at the time, played in Oklahoma City that season. Um, you know, they didn't play any games back here. So we were the first professional team to take the field here. And we had about 10,000 fans in the ballpark that night. And it, it was exciting. And I remember, I think it was, it's, it's my favorite baseball moment was being on the radio that night and, and, and saying play ball and oh, baseball seasons here. And, you know, I mean, it's time to proud to call New Orleans home and all those little cliches. It was, it was definitely an exciting time. I was going to say, recount that, that broadcast for me as well as you can. Um, and th- that atmosphere of 10,000 people being able to do something else. Yeah, no. And it was, we were, you know, I remember, you know, driving around the city, you know, for those, those winter months and so many people's homes have been flooded and so many people had to go, go to work during the day and then they get off work and then come home and they were either living in a FEMA trailer or, you know, and they would have to go work on their home. You know, they were cutting drywall and they were repairing things and replacing things. There was just so much to do that no one smiled. Like, you know what I mean? Nobody was ever mm. laughing or nobody. And I think that was the first day that I, you know, being at the ballpark that I saw people like cheer and, and get excited, especially during that fireworks show. And the fireworks show, you know, I told you earlier, I wasn't a huge fireworks fan because of just over whatever. But the fireworks <laughs> music that night was all New Orleans music themed. Cool. And uh, and I remember just people just being excited that there was an avenue. There was something to do other than, you know, something for their family to go out and have a good time at. And, and it is my number one baseball moment. I, I got interviewed a couple of years ago by a newspaper and he said, what is your favorite? Ma-? And I think he expected me to say like a walk off home run or, you know, calling, you know, I, you know, I broadcast one of Roger Clemens games when he, you know, he pitched against the Zephyrs a few years ago when he was on his rehab. And, you know, those are all great moments and great baseball moments, but definitely that first broadcast in April of 2006 definitely stands at the top. What was it like culturally? Uh, baseball teams are so culturally diverse a lot of times, different nationalities and different backgrounds of, of life. Um, what was it like, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, having the TV, having to be turned off in the clubhouse, to see guys of different walks of life all assembled in one room witnessing that together? It was, I mean, because obviously, you know, 
the Dominican Republic and, and Puerto Rico and Cuba, they've dealt with hurricanes all the time. You know I mean? They deal with it because they're down there. And I think some of those guys, you know, definitely understood it and accepted guys from California just didn't really comprehend like all of this water. Obviously they're used to earthquakes and and it was, you know, I, I think one of my favorite things about that being in the clubhouse, you know, a lot of the questions and I had only been in new Orleans at that point, little more than three years um so i i still never referred to new orleans as my home back then if you ask me where my home was even though i lived here year round i always said pittsburgh but you know i remember players coming up to me like is your home okay or whatever and and it was shortly right after that right after katrina that i started referring to new orleans as my home because i had lived through that and, and you know and i stayed here and and it's funny when people ask me how long i've lived in new orleans because you know obviously joel you know that I don't speak like I'm from here. You know, I don't have the same accent <laughs> yeah. and people are like, you're not from around here, are you? And they ask me how long I've lived here. And they're like, Oh, you're from Katrina. And they almost automatically treat you like you're from here when they knew that you moved here in the fall of Oh one. And that you stayed, you stayed after Katrina. Um, they definitely look at you as more of a native because of that, um, which is great. And I, and I appreciate that. But you know, when you talk about the cultural differences between the players, I remember, it was definitely a, a strange time, but at the same time, I mean, guys asking, and I think guys were true. Like they were real human beings in that clubhouse during that stretch because they realized that, you know, they were leaving town after the, um, you know, they weren't coming back or they wouldn't be back till next April when things were good again. But at the same time, they realized that I couldn't get back to, to my home or I couldn't get back to my job. And, you know, and, and, and they were real human about it and were, you know, we're genuine about it. And I, I think that, you know, it's definitely the soft side of, you know, the sensitive side of being in baseball. I don't want to take too much more of your time. And I don't know how to, uh, I don't know how to transition from that to where I'm going to go here. Um, right. Well, it's a difficult topic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even it's been 12 years, but it's, it's definitely, you know, it's difficult to talk about still. I mean, obviously the city's bounced back and it, it's great to see the city, you know, doing well again. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it, the city's way better because yeah. it's a lot cleaner and they were able to, to fix things that, that needed to be repaired. And, you know, and it, it's certainly a much better place. But I wouldn't say because of it, but because of the way the government and I know everybody looks, looks back at how the response was slow. But in the end, uh, they got a lot of things right. What's it like working with uh, with Ron on broadcasts? And, you know, for as much baseball as I've had the opportunity to do professionally, I've never really worked with a true baseball analyst in terms of having a former player with me. Um, and I feel like it would be different than doing it with uh, basketball or football or anything like that because of the conversational tone of the sport. Um, what's Ron like and, and how do you incorporate a guy with, with his past and expertise into your calls? He's a lot of fun. Um, I tell you what, he's, he's not just because he played baseball and not because he played nine years in the big leagues. He's a wealth of knowledge. And when I say that about a lot of topics, um, you know, he's very into history. He reads a ton. So, you know, if the game goes sideways one way or another, you just don't know what he's going to talk about. And it's amazing. Like the copper, the conversations on how he steers it. And, you know, and he's been around a long time. He's been around baseball a long time. And like I said, he's a wealth of knowledge. He's fantastic. Um, he can be harsh on players and obviously he has a right to be because he's a former major leaguer and, you know, especially outfielders. He knows when they were, they may have run the ball down and made the catch and got the play done, but if they ran the wrong route, 
obviously he's got a right to point that out where people like you and I are just play by play broadcasters are just going to, we're, we're just going to let it slide. The guy made the catch, but ultimately what's, what's the best fun about working with Ron is, you know, if he read something in a book earlier that day or had a conversation with someone in that day, he could, he could just pull stuff out of thin air, you know, out of right field. And you're just like, how in the world? And, and it's amazing because our, our clubhouse is connected to the dugout here at home. And obviously our guys, especially being in a hot and humid city like New Orleans, uh, a lot of our guys will duck into the air, into the air conditioning in the clubhouse while the team is t- on offense. And I'll, you know, I've got a pretty good relationship with a lot of our players and our players will be like, I was in there for a minute, you know, going to the bathroom or whatever in the clubhouse. And how in the world did you guys get to talking about that? <laughs> and a lot of times I'm like, I don't know. I was like, you know, and it's just like, that's Ron. That's, that's Ron. And, and, and that's why, and I hear it a lot from our fans that, you know, our guys that good friends of mine are fans that listen to us on the radio. And they're like, I don't know where in the world you guys, you know, it could be a six to one game, but yet you guys are very entertaining because you just never know what your guys are going to talk about. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a compliment or if it's just, you know, because you just never know, but it's, it makes things fun and, and it makes things interesting. Cause you know what it's like when you're down nine to one or something like that, you know, it, it's tough to keep entertained. But uh, at the same time, when you got a guy like Ron Swoboda with the wealth of his knowledge, it, it certainly can be a lot of fun. Tim, if people wanted to uh, follow you, catch you, listen to you, uh, how do they get in touch? Well, obviously, uh, you know, the, you, you, we talked about the team name change. So the website is True. Takes Baseball. Um, and obviously, you can listen to the games on iHeart and it streams through there. And my Twitter, which is something I don't do a whole lot of, I'm relatively new to that, but I am starting to branch out. It's uh, Mr. Tim Grubbs. Um, and then you can follow me there because I'll usually post up that we've got a game tonight and different things like that. But. Joel, I appreciate the time. This has been a lot of fun. Tim Grubbs joining us on Play by Play Cast, voice of the New Orleans Baby Cakes. I appreciate him taking that time, by the way. Our conversation was a little bit longer than what you heard, also. Uh, cut some chunks out of it to, to put it down into a more digestible sized podcast and conversation for you, but uh, really appreciative of his time and his willingness to come on here and uh, and talk about some of that stuff. I mean, he even said it when we transitioned at the end there away from Katrina and I wanted to get in a couple of questions about Swoboda and, and working with a, a former player analyst and and I think probably wanted to dive into that a little bit more but we just ran out of time uh you know he said yeah I I said how do you transition out of this and you know his response was was perfect it's a difficult thing to talk about it's a difficult thing to talk about uh even now so uh, I appreciate him going into the going as in-depth into that as he did and uh, appreciate the story about meeting his wife and uh, how Ball State factored into that. Probably have to shoot him some Ball State garb. I've got a bunch of stuff lying around that uh, is is Ball State uh, embroidered. My office is quite full, so maybe we'll we'll give them or we'll we'll give Tim a, a couple anniversary gifts or something like that. We'll be in the mail uh, at some point in here coming up. But uh, many thanks to Tim for joining us on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to next week's guest. Georgetown is coming to town. They're taking on the Butler Bulldogs this weekend in college basketball. And Rich Chavatkin and I, the longtime voice of the Georgetown Hoyas and the longtime solo voice of the Georgetown Hoyas, are going to sit down and chat. And that conversation will be with you next Friday here on Play by Playcast. Until then, though, we say so long, Hoya Saxa. That pains me to say. I'm a Syracuse grad. But Rich Chavatkin will be with us next week. Until then, Marshmallow's playing, so we are out. Oh,
Yeah.